Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. If you've been with us, Uh, The last few weeks, you know that we are finishing up our uh, annual vision series, uh, which centered this year around key practices that we are to engage in as disciples of Jesus. And we started the series uh, three weeks ago with uh, prayer and the practice of prayer. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about uh, the beauty and the necessity of engaging in community And last week, Ray Lowe was here from England to talk about the importance of walking in step with the Spirit, with our fourth and final practice, which is the art of reading the Scriptures. But we've framed uh, all of our discussions over the last few weeks uh, around these uh, verses in the book of Matthew, which are actually the very last verses in the book. And so I'll go ahead and read these verses for us, and we'll take some time to talk about uh, the implications that they have for uh, daily living. It says this, this is Matthew 28, verse 18. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is back from the dead. The gift of the Holy Spirit is right around the corner. And Jesus gives his disciples what we call the Great Commission. It was this great calling which became the very purpose of their lives. These simple sentences are central to God's mission in the world and perhaps the very reason that the church exists. In essence, Jesus is saying, "Be my, you're not doing it alone. He's saying, hey, I'm, I'm with you. And my spirit is with you, inside of you, dwelling among you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. We're, we're in this together. But there is a specific and profound mission to which you are called. Be my disciples, follow after me, do what I do, and become more like me in the process. What's the goal of our discipleship? What's the goal of our walk with Jesus? What's the goal of our very lives as the redeemed people of God? Well, essentially, it's learning to live, love, think, serve, and lead like Jesus. That's it. That's what we're after. And there are uh, so many angles that we could take in sort of unpacking uh, different elements of discipleship and the Great Commission and all of that. Uh, But this year we thought it would be fitting to focus in on four key practices uh, 
that we are to engage in as followers or disciples of Jesus and explore what those practices might look like for us in the coming year. So when it comes to prayer, uh, we want to be a praying people who are hungry for God, who are passionate about prayer, and who actively pray for change in in their families and in their neighborhoods and in their schools. We want to see change. We want to see uh, revival in those places. When it comes to community, we want to be a people who recognize our need, not just for God, but also our need for one another in our journey of discipleship. We want to be a people who, who take off the mask, so to speak, who live in, in openness and in authenticity and brokenness and, and vulnerability uh, with one another, who step into something uh, that, that is authentic and challenging and actually moves us somewhere, that, that moves us uh, closer to Jesus. When it comes to the Spirit, we want to be a people who are awake and alive to the power and presence of God at work among us, who, who seek the Spirit and, and seek to walk with the Spirit day in and day out, who see God's empowering presence as something that is, is central, even vital, to our daily living as we follow after him. We want to be a people who, who make ourselves available to God in real time and, and who learn to be guided by the Spirit along the way. And finally, we want to be a people who are engaged with the Scriptures in a way that is meaningful and transformative. And our uh, passion for the scriptures and our vision for the role that it should play in our lives uh, ultimately originates with Jesus himself. Now, uh, Jesus didn't have uh, the Bible as we have it today, uh, obviously, because if you know the Bible, you know that the final uh, quarter of the Bible, the last 25%, is what we call the New Testament. And it's all about Jesus himself. It starts with uh, his birth and goes through kind of his life and his ministry and the way that God worked through him and talks about the cross and the resurrection and, and the community that came into being in light of his resurrection and in light of the Great Commission. And, and so when we're asking those questions, hey, what happened through all of that? Who, who was there? What did he do? What what was he like? What does all of that mean for us, for the community of his followers still at work in the world? Who are we in light of what Jesus has done? We turn to that, uh, that final quarter, to the New Testament, uh, to find those answers. That all came into being after Jesus' resurrection. But what Jesus had in his day is what we call uh, the Tanakh or uh, the Hebrew Scriptures or what's commonly called the Old Testament, the first 75% of your Bible. And the Jewish culture in which Jesus was raised had incredible reverence for the Scriptures. And, and they listened to it, read aloud, and, and they, they studied it and they memorized it, and, and they meditated on it, and they placed their hope in it. 
Uh, and in the best case scenarios, their, their lives would have been uh, centered on and saturated by the Word of God. And Jesus did not depart from this tradition. And so if you, you know uh, the gospel accounts, the first-hand accounts of, of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, uh, you know we actually don't get a ton of insight into Jesus' early life. So we get a, a clear snapshot of his birth, from birth to about age 30, there's very, very little information. But one of the snapshots that we do get is Jesus at age 12 at the temple. And, and it says this, it says that he was in the temple courts sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So from a very young age, we can see that he was immersed in Scripture, learning about Scripture, asking good questions, growing in his knowledge of the Word of God. Fast forward to age 30, uh, Jesus is baptized. He sort of officially starts his ministry. And curiously, the first thing that happens is that he's actually led out into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And if you know the story, you know that every time that he's tempted by Satan, he responds with his very simple phrase, it is written. He quotes scripture. And over and over again, Satan tempts him with different temptations. Satan himself even quotes scripture to try and trap Jesus. And he goes back again and again and says, It is written. He stands on the truth of scripture. And as he goes from there into uh, his ministry, he's often attested by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And in response, he quotes scripture. And, and he, he's out on the streets meeting face to face with, with hurting people, unleashing the inbreaking kingdom of God into their circumstances. And as he does, he references scripture. And when Jesus is dying, on the cross for our freedom he quotes scripture he prays the psalms his entire worldview was shaped by the hebrew scriptures and the truth that they contain it, it was the lens through which he viewed reality in fact i would argue it was the lens through which he viewed himself How did he know the, 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 all of the details of the role that he was to play and, and how he uh, needed to die and rise again for the sins of the world? Well, in part, because it was written in the scriptures. In fact, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, which was a nearby town. 
and we're told uh, that these two disciples were kept from recognizing Jesus in his kind of new resurrected body. So they don't know who they're talking with, but the entire way as they walked from one town to the next, uh, he explained from start to finish through the lens of scripture the necessity of the Messiah in needing to die and be raised to life again. It says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And and we're told that their hearts were beating in their chests as they listened to this man explain the scriptures to them. No one knew the Bible of his day the way that Jesus knew the scriptures. In fact, in in his challenges with the religious elite, he told them, hey, you are in error. You're supposed to be teaching the scriptures, but you are in error. You don't get it. You don't understand because you do not know the what? The scriptures or the power of God. In other words, if you did, if you knew the Bible that you claim to teach and represent, it would change your entire worldview. You would understand reality in a way that you don't understand it right now. You would see me, Jesus is saying, for who I am. You would be on board with the inbreaking kingdom of God. Everything would shift if only you knew. Let me tell you why you're in error. You don't, you don't know. How did Jesus come to know the the Hebrew scriptures so well? Well, the obvious answer is that he engaged with it, that that he listened to it, uh, read aloud, as was their tradition, that that he read the word. And I don't want to ignore uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in his experience of Scripture, and I wouldn't want to ignore that in ours either. But I do want to highlight the simple fact that Jesus was steeped in Scripture. He, he read these words that you have in your hand. He meditated on these words. He, he memorized these words. He let them sink down into his bones and, and, and become a part of who he was. They colored and shaped the way he viewed the world. He studied Israel's history. He prayed through the psalms, the same psalms you have in your body. He prayed through those psalms. He, he meditated on the wisdom literature. He, he, he put his, his, his hope and faith and trust in the prophetic words of the major and minor prophets. He had reverence for this book. He affirmed the, the inspired nature of this book. He placed himself under the authority of this book. He understood his own identity and calling through the lens of these pages. He saw reality itself through the grid of the truth which they reveal. And if we are to live, love, think, serve, and lead like Jesus, then we have to do the same. 
At the center of our faith sits Jesus of Nazareth, alive and well, back from the dead. But we come to know Jesus. We, we, we come face to face with Jesus through the lens of these pages. The book that you now hold in your hand is the most popular book in human history. It sells 25 million copies a year, and currently, uh, to date worldwide, there have been more than two and a half billion Bibles that have been purchased. It has been translated into over 2,000 languages and counting. The book that you hold in your hand has shaped world history more than any other book that has ever been written. If you grew up in Western culture, which I assume uh, most of you did, then you grew up in an environment that has been shaped and influenced by these pages from the grounds up. Our moral ethic the words and phrases that we use in everyday language, our sense of justice and equality, our art, our architecture, our music, our movies, all of it has been deeply shaped and influenced by the Bible. It was the Bible that, that inspired Bach to write his music and, and Michelangelo to paint and Galileo to study the universe. It was the Bible that has given rise to our modern day uh, vision of a just and equal society. To remove the Bible from Western history, or from world history for that matter, would be to render that history unrecognizable. The world that we live in has been shaped by this book. No other book in history has inspired more people or brought more people face to face with God. It is a living, breathing, powerful book. Gandhi, who was not a Christian, spoke of the Bible in this way. He said, you Christians, look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces. Turn the world upside down and bring peace to a battle-torn planet. But you treat it as though it were nothing more than a piece of literature. And while I don't share fully in his assessment of Christians, I will be the first to agree with his assessment of Scripture. This book contains dynamite. This book is powerful. This book takes cultures and flips them upside down. This book is perhaps the most controversial book in world history. And throughout history, there have always been those in power who have been threatened by it. And there have always been those in power who, when threatened by it, ha have attempted to co-opt it, to maintain their own power, to support the evil that they've already determined to do. 
No, no book has been the, the subject of more persecution and more book burnings. No book has kicked over more hornet's nests or challenged more people in authority than the book that you hold in your hand. And yet despite the co-opting, despite the twisting, despite the slander, despite the book burnings, despite the resistance, despite the controversy, it just continues to spread. Across cultures and continents, over countless centuries, it has continued to grow and gain influence around the world. There's just something about this book. And, and there's something about the words recorded in these pages that make it unlike any other book that's ever been written. But fast forward into the modern age, and, and we encounter sort of a, an odd and, and tension-filled climate. It is no secret that we now live in, in what's being called a post-Christian culture, especially here in the Pacific Northwest. And what that means, in a sense, is that mainstream culture has reacted against Christianity, uh, not by moving on to another religion and not by moving backwards to where they were uh, before Christianity, but rather by stepping into this new territory uh, where they want the beauty and, and the wisdom and the vision uh, of the kingdom of God. They just don't want anything to do with God. The quote that we've used before is that our secular culture in America wants the kingdom of God without the king. It, it, it's post-Christian, it's reacting against. And, and within this culture, there's sort of this attitude that, hey, we love the ideas, but we don't need God, and we don't need the scriptures. We can actually do this perfectly well on our own. Thank you very much. Our country's anti-Christian undercurrents are slowly getting stronger and louder than they were in decades or centuries past. And what that means, practically speaking, is that the winds of skepticism have swept across our country and the overall positive assessment that the culture used to have toward faith has dried up. In its place, we find a culture of deconstruction. That means that our, our impulse as a culture is to deconstruct, to pick apart, to analyze, criticize, and tear down just about everything that we can get our hands on. Could be the religious establishment, could be the political establishment, could be just the idea of big business, it could be the historical divides uh, that have typically existed uh, between genders or between races or between different uh, socioeconomic classes. Uh, whatever it is, our impulse is to analyze, uh, criticize, deconstruct, pick apart, tear it all down uh, brick by brick. And yet, uh, rarely if ever are we taught what reconstruction looks like. But we're in the midst of this sort of deconstruction uh, culture, and it's not all bad. A, a lot of what we're deconstructing, I think, is actually really good. And some of the things that are being deconstructed 
actually need to be deconstructed in order for the kingdom of God to advance. The problem is that many of us are breathing this post-Christian air. And so what we do increasingly is that we then approach God and faith in the Bible with this sort of deconstruction, skeptical, even cynical attitude that says, I'm going to kind of pick it apart, uh, tear it to shreds, uh, leave it on the floor, uh, but not really have any sense of how to do that responsibly or, or how to put the pieces back together again. And the result is that the cultural attitude uh, toward God and faith and the Bible in particular is an increasingly negative one. And, and you know this because it shows up everywhere. It, it's in our school systems and our college campuses, on social media and in our movies. It's in our politics. It, it's captured in sort of the, the overall belief and attitude that faith and, and the myth about God's existence and the Bible are all sort of these bigoted, outdated things from the past that we just need to shake off. GQ magazine uh, recently published an article on the top 21 literary classics that aren't worth reading. In, in other words, hey, what are the most overrated books out there? And to the shock and horror of many, they put the Bible on the list. Uh, here's what they had to say. They said the Bible is highly rated by those who claim to live by it but have not read it. In reality, it is repetitive, self-contradictory, sentientious, foolish, and even at times ill-intentioned. Now to be fair, some of those things simply are not true uh, of the Bible. Um, and obviously GQ is going to sell more magazines if they stir up controversy. But you can see how this is reflective uh, of the cultural attitudes of our day. We don't really know what's in the Bible. We, we haven't really read it for ourselves. But we'll, our default now is just to kind of assume that it's a lot of this stuff. And, and we can't really back it up with anything, but that's sort of our default. Oh yeah, I think it's all of these things until you prove to me that it's not. Just as concerning is the fact that inside of the church, a lot of us get up in arms about these types of critiques and, and, and cultural criticisms. Uh, but oftentimes, those who are the most vocal in attacking the Bible outside of the church and those who are the most vocal in defending the Bible from within the church have not read the Bible for themselves. We can get all up in arms about defending the Bible on social media, but the problem is that most of us don't actually take the time to read it. As a result, the Bible has been called the most popular book that no one reads. A recent CNN article uh, explored the phenomenon 
of professing Christians quoting the Bible in various contexts, whether it's like post-game sports interviews on ESPN or presidential speeches or whatever it is. People are saying, hey, you know, the election didn't go my way, this didn't happen, whatever, but the Bible says. The problem is that they are consistently filling in the blank with things that aren't in the Bible. And so they're exploring this phenomenon. If you have all of these Christians who are very public, tons of visibility, who say, well, the Bible says, and then they go on to say something that's just totally not in the Bible. Proving uh, to uh, the world that they aren't actually immersed in the book that they claim to represent. And this, sadly, it brings us into the sad irony of the present day. 500 years ago, during a period that we call uh, the Reformation, one of the central uh, desires of this uh, revolution that was happening was to get the Bible into the hands of the common person. Uh, 500 years isn't that long ago, but rewind uh, 500, and there actually weren't many copies of the Bible most of the copies that did exist across Europe were in Latin, and a church might have one. And, and so as a result, your church has one Bible. Uh, it was not uncommon for the Bible to be chained to the pulpit for security purposes. Okay, so imagine there's one Bible in the church. It's not in your native language, and it's chained to the pulpit which meant uh, that if the priest or leader got up and preached something that wasn't in the scriptures, you wouldn't really know. And, and because you didn't speak Latin and you weren't chained to the pulpit. And, and so th there was this huge shift through the Reformation and in the advent of the printing press. All of a sudden, everything began to shift and there was this push to get the Bible into the hands uh, of, of the common person, of the everyday uh, person. And there we have records of people in England being put to death, literally being executed for standing up for the right to have the Bible translated into English. They were being put to death for that. Fast forward a, a few hundred years and, and we have this book that, that's full of dynamite, enough to change the world, that's finally been translated into our native language. And yet more often than not, it collects dust on the shelf. More often than not, it gets passed over for Netflix. The mechanism by which God revealed, reveals, and is revealing himself to the world is sitting on our shelf, and we rarely take the time to pick it up. We'd rather get our Bible quotes from Instagram and from Twitter. A quick verse here, a quick verse there, artistic backgrounds, get my shot in the arm, go about my day. Wait, is that one even in the Bible? Are, are they ripping that out of context? I don't know, but it sounds really nice. Meanwhile, our Bibles might as well be in Latin. 
because most of them sit unopened. And GQ levels an accusation, and, and the culture says, hey, the Bible is outdated and it's lame. And half of us get really upset about it, and the other half kind of start to believe them because we don't know any better, because we're not engaging in it for ourselves. The Bible has never been as widely available as it is today, and yet most of us don't know what it says. And, and worse yet, many of us think we know, and we really don't. We have never had more Bibles in the world, but we've also never been more distracted. And as a result, biblical illiteracy is skyrocketing. If we are to be a people who live, love, think, serve, and lead like Jesus, then we have to reverse that trend. We actually have to become a community and a people who engage in the scriptures and who are transformed by them in the process. So here's what we uh, are going to do. In the coming year, there are uh, three practical, straightforward things that we are going to do as a community. And the first one is that we are going to read our Bibles. Uh, the invitation for you this year, starting today, will be to read your Bible in a year. Cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, takes about uh, 15 minutes a day. Uh, and here's the deal. We're inviting you to do this. I, I'm praying that it kind of gains traction and that as a community, we, we decide to do this together. Uh, but I don't want you to do this out of guilt. And, and I don't want you to do it out of obligation and I don't want to do it, I don't want you to do it out of some weird sense of like peer pressure or whatever, okay? There's no pressure. You're invited to do this, and you can do this if you decide that you want to do it. And, and here's why I stress that. If you try to read the Bible in a year, and you do it out of guilt, or you do it out of obligation, or, or whatever else, it's going to be really painful. Really. If you decide that, that you want to, to read these pages for, for your own growth because you want to be transformed, you will not be disappointed. If you're reading it with a curiosity and a hunger and a willingness to, to learn and grow and ask questions, then these pages are going to come to life and I promise that you will be different by the time you finish. And as you read these pages here in your native language, um, on your own time, 15 minutes a day, we are also going to be exploring the big picture story of the Bible, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, on Sundays. So our hope is that as a community, we'll be reading the Bible 15 minutes a day on our own time, and we have an app that, that I'll share at the end that makes that really accessible. Uh, 
And we, we want to be a community that's coming together on Sundays over the course of the next year and, and exploring the, the big picture story of the Bible. We're going to spend extra time in Genesis. We're going to spend extra time in Revelation because those are typically the books that give us the most trouble. But we want to, we want to know all of the Bible, the, the, the big picture story. So, for example, if you decide that you want to jump on board with this, no pressure, you're, you're welcome here either way. But if you decide, hey, I want to jump on board with this, what that looks like is that tonight you would start by reading Genesis 1, verse 1, first verse of the Bible, and, and on through. When you come and, and gather together here next Sunday, we're going to be studying Genesis 1, verse 1 of the Bible. Hey, what does that mean? What does it say? We're going to be exploring those themes together as we move through the Bible cover to cover. We want to know what it says. We want to allow God to speak to us in our own personal time and as a gathered community over the course of the next year. As you engage with scripture, we're going to be studying that uh, together. So if you start tonight in Genesis 1, you'll finish a year from now in the book of Revelation. And a year from now on Sunday, we'll be studying the book of Revelation. So we're hoping that this will be a way for us to all kind of journey together. Uh, as you engage with the scriptures, on your own time and in the Sunday gatherings, there is one more resource that we'd like to make available, and that is a place to ask questions. If at any point in your personal reading and kind of devotional time and reflection in reading the scriptures through the Sunday teachings, if at any point you have a question about the scriptures, we want to hear your voice. We want to explore those questions together as a community. And if you don't have questions, if you can read through the Bible cover to cover and you don't have questions, you are either way smarter than me or, or we're not reading the same book. Because if you've read the Bible, you know that parts of it are, are foreign and strange and just plain weird. And, and there's a lot of stuff in there that like some parts of it are really strengthening for your faith and other times you come to stuff and you're just thinking, what the heck is this? Like what, why is this even in the scripture? What does that even mean? What am I supposed to do with that? And so we want to leave a space uh, for those questions to be asked. So if you do have questions, and I assume that you will, we want you uh, to bring some of those questions to us and allow us as a community uh, to wrestle with those questions out in the open. And you can uh, text this number at any time. It's gonna be on uh, the homepage of the website as well. And so you'll have access to that throughout the year. As those questions get uh, texted in, we want to try and answer as many as we can through our time together, journeying through the scriptures. The Bible is a brilliant book. It is unparalleled in all of human history. These are the covenant documents that bring us face to face with the living God, with Jesus himself, and they teach us how to be in relationship with him. These are inspired and, and trustworthy words that were meant to reveal to us 
the deeper truths about our reality, who God is, who we are in light of what God has done, where all of this is headed. There is nothing quite like this book. But in the same breath, we recognize that the Bible can feel foreign and confusing. It, it can feel repetitive and layered and complicated and, and sometimes just plain weird. And it can raise as many questions as it answers. We all come to the Bible with those universal human questions that, that every single human being has to answer. Is God real? What is God like? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where is this all headed? What is the fate of humanity? What is the fate of the universe, for that matter? Why is there evil in the world? And what is God doing about it? You'll find the answers to those questions as you read through the pages of Scripture. But as you find the answers to those questions, odds are a whole bunch of other questions are going to arise in your mind. Hey, where did the Bible come from? How do we know we can trust it? Is Genesis a literal account of how the world was created? How does Genesis relate to modern science? Was there really a global flood in, in the time of Noah? Why does God use prophets instead of just speaking to all of humanity directly? Why is there so much violence in the Old Testament? Is the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament really the same God? Is it really Jesus? And, and why did Jesus have to die anyway? And what's Revelation all about, and on and on and on. It should answer a whole bunch of human questions, and it should raise a whole nother set of questions about what it is we're reading and what it means for us. As we breathe the air of our post-Christian culture, we cannot help but ask certain questions. And so what we want to do in the coming year is not ignore the questions and, and, and not pretend like we don't have them and not sweep them under the rug and not give canned answers that are totally unsatisfying and not just tell you to just have more faith so you won't have to ask questions. No. Look at Jesus, a boy in the temple, age 12. What's he doing? He's asking questions. Hey, what about that? What does that mean? What, what about this piece over here? The culture is asking questions about the Bible. Your non-Christian friends and family members are asking questions about the Bible. Odds are that you have questions about the Bible, and, and we want to explore those as a community, but it all starts here. We want to read these pages together. We want to be immersed in them, and, and we want to study them on our own, and we want to study them as a gathered community, and we want to ask really good questions along the way that propel us deeper into the scriptures, deeper into our understanding, and deeper into our relationship with Jesus. We want to engage with the scriptures in a way that's transformative 
and life-changing, and that actually shifts and changes and enhances the way that we see the world. The God of the universe has revealed himself to us. He has come pursuing humanity, revealing himself in and through the person of Jesus as the God who saves. And he's revealed most clearly in the book that you hold in your hands. Our goal is to respond to him by saying yes, by allowing him to work his good purposes in us and through us, to do all that he longs to do, to follow after Jesus and become more like him in the process. We want to live, love, think, serve, and lead more like Jesus a year from now than we do today. And we believe the very best place to start is by engaging with this ancient, provocative, prophetic, offensive, compelling, comforting, confusing, brilliant, covenant-embedding, inspired book and allowing it to shape our minds, to shape our hearts, to shape our thoughts, to shape the way we view the world for years to come. If you engage with this book, you will be changed. And that's our hope for the coming year. Let's pray.